No, no, God, no. We don't want those idiots bumbling around in this. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And if it's Friday, it's time to work once again. It is our privilege to be working with our producer, bad boy, Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you, sir? Hi, kids. Doing well. Happy Friday. We're having a pretty good time. Yeah. I'm wearing my Tampa Bay Lightning hat down here as we broadcast diagonally from Seattle to points on known and everywhere else losing in overtime five to four the kraken's gonna have to start upholding the quality standards because our lightning man they are just falling down on the ice so uh i can spin that 180 i believe we won our game in overtime against the red wings five to four so there's a bonus there you thing. go now that is amazing okay. because as coincidences okay. go the last time i asked you about it both our teams had lost in overtime six to five yep. on the same night very weird wild world that's right we are wired for weird here at twilight zone time today you know suzanne if i have said this once i have said it 18 times joe rombolo is going to be on the show with us after a long absence he is back our people talk to his people they get together they bring in the lawyers god knows what they're saying behind big contract big contract but joe rombolo is with us today and we are so delighted joe rombolo is the former bass player and band leader of the rhythm and blues rock and soul horn band of the spirit of st louis after moving into the business end of the music industry he toured with the moody blues and the band chicago he was the owner operator of Rombolo's Deli, an Italian specialty store in St. Louis, Missouri, a former radio talk show host, and is now a licensed Medicare insurance broker. Last on Manson Mitchell eight years ago, we are delighted to have with us today the sainted rascal, Joe Rombolo. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Joe. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as I was saying the last time I was here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. And uh, apparently Joe is rather enamored of this moniker, Sainted Rascal, but I think it suits you, Joe. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, You know, I, when, I saw it, when I saw it in writing, I thought, hey, you know, this is pretty good. I think I'm going to keep that. I like it. You're welcome to it. We have not talked a lot when when we had you on before. We we did not talk very much about your music career. Strangely enough, you're one of those few people we've actually met in person where we met in Las Vegas and were able to sit down and, and have a cup of coffee together and talk. But uh, when Gary and I were looking at your information here, touring with the Moody Blues and the band Chicago, I think we both raised our eyebrows quite a bit. Gary and I actually saw Chicago in concert in August of 2014 at Navy Pier. And, and so I said, we have got to ask Joe about those bands. And so, Gary, what's your question? Yeah, it's, I can't believe I didn't ask about this before, for goodness sake. But Joe, to the extent that you can share, and of course, we're a family show and we're not talking about the night that they uh, tore up a, 
hotel room or something. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you were working, when you were collegial with the likes of the Moody Blues and Chicago, what was it like working with them musically, but also these seem like these are sophisticated men in popular culture who made a mark worldwide. What was it like being around all of that? Well, <clears throat> I'll tell you, um, prior to prior to the tour with the Moody Blues, and I did not tour as a musician. I, I toured on the business side. I was working for a management company that um, had just signed, had a, gotten a band signed to Warner Brothers Records. And it was a band from St. Louis called PM. Uh, they ultimately ended up being part of Jimmy Buffett's backup band. But at the time, they had their they had their own record, and I was their uh, their road manager. And that's how we were. That's how we uh, ended up touring with uh, the Moody Blues. I will tell you this: I never really was a Moody Blues fan prior to the tour. Um, I really wasn't a Moody Blues fan after the tour. They just were not. Uh, they were not friendly. They were not friendly people. They kept to themselves. Uh, they never showed up at their own sound check. Um, you know, it was, uh, but it was fun being out on tour, being exposed to that, that whole rock and roll tour. And I'm not talking about the partying end of it or anything like that. It was fun being, being out there on tour. What was more fun was being out on tour with Chicago. And the reason why that was more fun, uh, I've always been, I've always loved horn bands. And, you know, when Chicago first came on the scene, I immediately was, was a fan. And, you know, to have the opportunity to be out on tour with uh, someone who, you know, I mean, you've just been enamored with this band and their music and to be able to be out on tour and meet them. Now, these people were down to earth. They were very down to earth. They were fun. Um they used to show up at the venue early. They would sit down and eat dinner with the crew. Uh, mm. They would they would do their sound check. They invited us into their dressing rooms. They said they had two dressing rooms. We had one. And, you know, the big deal uh, backstage is catering. You know, who's got the best catering? Well, we were, this was an opening act. We had, you know, nice little catering. These people, they had shrimp cocktail in their dressing rooms and all kinds of stuff. And they first first night on a tour, they said, hey, we're not going to eat all this stuff. Anytime you guys want to come in here, just come on in and take this stuff. You know, so they were just really, really uh, nice people down to earth. And even afterwards, we would go out and see them, you know, like like here in St. Louis or in Kansas City. And they were very welcoming. They welcomed us backstage. So it was fun. It was it was quite an experience. And, uh, you know, I I was very thankful and appreciative to have had that. I was living in Chicago as a Chicago-born native when the band uh, Chicago came on, and originally that was not their name. It was it was a Chicago Transit Authority (CTA) mm -hmm. is what they were called before they renamed themselves Chicago. And like you, I fell in love with the band because of the <laughs> horn section. I, I love the the horn playing, and my grandfather played the saxophone, so I had always been exposed to bands and horn music, and so I thought that was a little bit different as I was in my teenage years and, and 20s to hear that kind of a sound when everything else had been just guitars and drums before that. So, yeah, it caught my ear, too. Well, they they always featured themselves as a rock and roll band with horns. And so 
and, and they they've said it they've said it themselves they've said it for years and um <clears throat> and that's pretty much what they were i mean if you just consider their rhythm section the original rhythm section with terry kath on guitar peter satara on bass danny seraphin on drums and and robert lamb on keyboards i mean that's a killer rhythm section right there you know and then then you put the horn section on top of that these are all schooled musicians they are all schooled musicians but they could also feel the music and mm. you know sometimes the schooled musicians they're just playing notes on a piece of paper but they yeah. got it they really got it and i'm going to tell you that some of that early material you know that robert lamb wrote and that jimmy panka the trombone player wrote i mean just some incredible stuff really uh, i i just absolutely loved it very good we experienced the kind of professionalism and consideration toward the fans on the part of Paul McCartney. Suzanne and I have seen Paul McCartney twice in concert, once in Jacksonville, Florida, and a second time in Tampa. When we drove to see him in Tampa, it was raining cats and dogs. Now, there are musicians, and I can't name this or that person, I just know that different people look at situations in different ways. Whereas some musicians, including very famous ones, might decide, okay, the show must go on. Let's get going. We're going to be on for so long. We'll do an encore, and then we're getting out of here. Paul McCartney, because of the, the rainstorm and the lightning and the people are trying to find parking in the mud and all of that, he did not take the stage until he and everyone else could see that the vast majority of the seats were filled about a half hour after the scheduled start time of the concert. They were there to see him, and he was going to wait as long as he could before taking the stage so that people could get in, get seated, get comfortable, and then the show would begin. That, to me, is the mark of the consummate professional. Absolutely. And, you know, I only saw Paul McCartney one time, and it was not as a solo act. I believe it was the year was either 1964 or 1966 here in St. Louis at Bush Stadium, the ballpark here, uh, the Beatles, the Beatles were here and it was pouring down rain that night as well. And uh, my brother and I, uh, we we got seats. Uh, we were like up in the nosebleed section of the ballpark, but we were there. And I mean, that was back in the day when, you know, sound systems, nobody heard of really good sound systems. They went out there. I think they only played 35 minutes. They had uh, two opening acts. I believe one of them was Bobby Hebb. And he had that his hit song at the time was a song called Sonny. You might remember that. Yes. And, yes. And then there was another band called Circle. And they had a, a their hit was Red Rubber Ball. I remember, I remember that too. Remember, remember that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so they were, that was, that was the lineup that night pouring down rain. And from, I read, you know, from the, the musician side of it, uh, that was one of those situations where uh, they were actually afraid of being electrocuted because oh. it was raining. They did not have sufficient shelter. Oh, uh, amplifiers were getting wet wow. and everything, but you know, it was the Beatles. And again, again, my taste in music might be a little bit different. We, my brother and I went because we got free tickets. I would, you know, I, that would be one reason. I was, I was not, I wasn't a big fan. I Who was, did you I like was, at that time? At that time, I was into the whole, uh, the whole soul type of music that was coming out of Memphis, Tennessee, Stax Records, uh, Wilson Pickett, uh, Otis Redding on Atlantic Records. Oh, yeah. 
that yeah. whole that whole thing coming out of the south uh all the motown stuff right. that's the that's the music that's the music that i actually grew up on and started to play as a young musician ah so those were some of your influences then Ab- yeah absolutely and mm-hmm. when when you were uh playing bass and um and the band leader did you run across those hairy kinds of situations in st louis with bad weather or you know something that was going to affect your performance you know most of the time we did not we were we were really fortunate we we were extremely fortunate um i i'll, I'll tell you I, i'm just thinking about one situation uh it had nothing to do with like rain and bad weather but there is a uh, there was a 4th of july celebration down here on the riverfront every year and um at the time it was called the VP fair. We played the second one ever. Uh, we were slated to do three shows a day for three days in July. Okay. And I mean, so we were there from early morning. We had a booth, we were selling our merchandise and stuff. And, and, you know, was when it was showtime, you know, we'd make our way up to the stage. We do our show, we'd leave, we go back to the booth. The scariest situation, it was, it was very hot. I mean, it was dangerously hot and and we had difficulty getting water. The scariest thing was at the end of the at the end of the last show, there was the fireworks display. And then we had a hotel room as kind of like a home base that we were trying to get to. And we were walking up the steps of the Gateway Arch so that we could get to our hotel room. And there were so many people that we were all like in gridlock. And if you've ever wondered what it was like to be in the middle of a stampede that was it it was mm. it was scary there were four of us from the band that were in the middle of that we didn't know if we were going to make it out of there because people just it was just uh, it was a stampede it really was we thought we were going to get trampled you know but we did you, make it we did make it out of there are you a st louis native joe yes born and yeah. raised born and raised in st louis and then and then um I guess when I was 24 years old, I took the band on the road and we were out there for, we were out there for about 15 years out on the road. And you live in St. Louis now. Yes. I live right across the river. Now. Um, I live in Glen Carbon, Illinois, which is just right across the river from St. Louis. Okay. So essentially that's still your closest city for air travel and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, we're still part of the St. Louis metropolitan area. That, that's what I figured, even if you were across the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me when I talk to somebody, whether they're New York, Chicago, St. Louis, um, that they can travel and they've been around, sometimes around the world, sometimes around the country, but they want they their roots are still a lot of times where they were born. And, and so your roots must be pretty deeply planted there in the St. Louis area. Well, absolutely. Even, you know, when we went on the road after, after a couple of years on the road, we were rich. The band was originally called the American dream. And we were able after a couple of years to change the name of the band to the spirit of St. Louis. And, uh, you know, of course we traveled all over the country with that, with that name. So, um, all of us in the band are extremely fond of, of being from St. Louis and actually living, uh, in the area, all the guys that were in the band, um, still live in the in in the st louis area and we absolutely love it there 
And speaking of hot days in St. Louis, didn't you tell me one time, Joe, that, and this would have been right around the time when you saw the Beatles, you attended the 1966 baseball all-star game, which was in St. Louis that year, and the temperatures and the humidity were so intense that, and you told me you recalled that, the heat was so intense that I don't know how players didn't just pass out there in the outfield. Well, you know, I think that was I think that was the day that uh, Casey Stengel, when asked about what he thought about the new ballpark in St. Louis, uh, he said that it really holds the heat well. <laughs> <laughs> and being you know. Casey Stengel, that's it. These these New York traditions, you get the wise guys like Yogi Berra and whatnot. They're always with mm -hmm. the wisecracks. The other thing that uh, I wanted to talk about before we go into our break, and again, it comes from our intro for you today, something else that we haven't talked about. In the second half, we're going to talk about more familiar things that we've discussed before, but it was interesting that you were the owner-operator of Rombolo's Deli, an Italian specialty store, and I just got such a smile on my face about that. I could just picture you in that store telling people what what tastes good what they should eat what was the best thing and uh and so i wanted you to talk a little bit about that was that a family business or did you start that well i'll tell you <clears throat> i grew up in the food business my dad and my uncle owned a wholesale and retail grocery store and meat market on the hill which is the italian section of town in st louis so i grew up in that business and um, you know, and then, you know, I went to college and, uh, we all, my brother, my brother, my cousins, there were, there were five of us all together. My brother is about three and a half years younger than me. And all of my cousins were all about, uh, about three, three and a half years apart all the way down to the, to the youngest one. And so I worked in that store and, you know, as I got older, um, I always tell people I started working when I was three. You know, because, you know, you'd be at the store, you know, and you'd want to do something. So they'd give you some little job to do. But as you got older, you took on new responsibilities. And then the person that was right behind you would come come behind you and take on your responsibilities. So we all grew up in that business. But then we all kind of you drifted away from it. And, you know, at one point, my uncle passed away young. My dad sold the business. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, I thought, yeah, you know what? I probably should have just gone in, you know, gone, gone into that business. But about five years later, I got sick of the music business. And that that's a the whole music business thing. That's a that's a different topic for a whole different show. But anyway, I, I guess I needed a place to just take a break and rest. And so this little deli on the hill became available. And uh, my dad and I went into it. And for my dad, he had been retired for five years and he really didn't know what to do with himself. He needed to have something to do. So when I said, yeah, let's do this, um, you know, he was thrilled because now he had some place to go every morning. And so, yeah, it was it was fun. It was like I said, it was a place to rest, kind of take a take a breather. I was in the business for 13 years. And while I was there, there were, you know, other things that developed. And actually what, what came about during that time was, I think, what we we're going to talk about in the second half, that whole yes. personal growth and development, metaphysical, exactly. spiritual thing. Yep, you know? yep exactly. 
If so. we hadn't gotten into that deeply into your background before, it's like we always jumped right to the metaphysical spirituality as soon as we said hello. And so Gary and I thought this time we want to go a little deeper into you know, Joe's roots. And it's kind of funny because I, I think if I remember, this is like your 18th time with us. And after 17 times on the 18th time, we're finally getting to your roots. Um, <laughs> when you when you had that Italian specialty store, what kinds of things did you like? And I'm assuming a lot of it was imported. Some of it was imported. Some of it was <clears throat> was local. I was in a building. I was in a building that housed a uh, a salami company. Oh, there was okay. there was there was the old Annie Brothers Salami Company. I was in their building, and two blocks down the street was the Volpe Salami Company. Now, old Annie's huh. is they've they sold out and everything, but Volpe's they were they started in business in 1903, so they were like right down the street. So, I mean, as, as far as imported stuff goes, these people they made product as good, if not better, than 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 some of the imported things. But um, like I said, that business was more of a uh, it was more of a lunch kind of business, sandwiches, pasta, salads, those kinds of things. And then we made some things that you could take home and you know and cook yourself. But um, my favorite sandwich ever still is a mortadella sandwich ah. with provolone cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, onions, and some kind of hot mustard. My favorite. Wow! wow. I still I still go there. I I sold the business to a couple of brothers that are that still have kept it going and uh -huh. when i go there that's exactly what i get every time and what about dessert you know we didn't have any desserts we didn't really? have desserts no cookies i had i had the best cannolis in town <laughs> one block down the street at vitale's bakery uh -huh. i had all kinds of wonderful uh bakery goods down a different block one block away from me at missouri baking company there was no need uh, to have desserts. People wanted dessert, I'd send them to one of the bakeries. Very good. So a, a lot of sandwiches then. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Matter, matter of fact, I have a nine-year-old grandson. I took him in there one day and he ordered, he, he, he looked at the menu. He ordered what was called the special and he had that sandwich and he said, Papa, that's the best sandwich I've ever had in my life. Wow. So, this brings up a point I would like to, I'd like to build on what you were saying. You know, Suzanne and I last summer had the honor and privilege due to the graciousness and the hospitality of our hosts to stay in Kearney, New Jersey. And when we walked down the driveway of our host's home, you could stand out in the middle of a residential street and look across the Hudson at the Manhattan skyline. Mm -hmm. So we went out for an Italian meal the first night we were there. And I figure, okay, that's it for night. We'll go back, have some dessert and chit chat before we go to bed. No, 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 no. Our, our host said, uh, hey, why don't we go ahead and drive into the city? I'll take you in there. Carl is the, the uh, husband's name. Carl said, I'll go ahead and uh, drive us into the city and we can go to Times Square. I'm prepared to finish the meal and go back to home and meet the cats that they have. They have three cats and just call it a night. And instead, we park in Midtown Manhattan, and when Suzanne and I stepped into Times Square, outside the parking structure, I swear to you, I felt like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz when she goes from <laughs> black and white 
to the the color, the sudden color film and the yellow brick road. It was absolutely stunning. So we wow. we made three trips into New York, which included a, a side trip to uh, Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty. When we went, finally, our last trip, we went into Washington Park and then on into Greenwich Village. When we got to Greenwich Village, I was looking at places and just in my mind, I was going, now, could I live there? I mean, if money were no object, could I live there? How about there? That looks like a nice apartment right there. That What's that got to be like 4000 a month or something? You know, And it's an yeah. old building. And in one particular, uh, just over the sidewalk and by the tree that needed to be pruned back a bit, I remember thinking, oh, that looks like a very cute place. And it was directly over. So in other words, there's street level, and then this was the first apartment level above it. It was directly over a place called Artistic Pizza in Greenwich Village. And I thought, you'd be smelling pizza morning, noon, and night. You might as well live in the pizzeria. But there it is, artistic pizza. And above it, somebody's living there. The reason why I tell you this story, Joe, is because I think that something something invaluable is lost when people move into the suburbs and when they have, as they first did in Irvine, California, way back when, when there are master planned communities, you get all the advantages of modernity, anything that's innovative in in urban or suburban living, it's going to show up in these master planned communities, but you lose part of your urban soul. If you've been to St. Louis, if you've been to New York, if you've been to Seattle and San Francisco, wherever it is, Chicago, certainly, when you move out into the burbs or places that have intensive master planning, your town culture evaporates and it's usually replaced by something that operates in a chain, something that is just easy to recognize. And what thrilled you as a child or was the place where your family gathered for any important occasion simply goes away. There's something tragic and bittersweet about that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, like, in in terms of the Italian neighborhood here in St. Louis, it's called the Hill, and uh, it's still there. It's very vibrant. I mean, it is actually uh, staged a comeback. I mean, people are moving into the Hill now. This is a, a very treasured place to live. It's even to the point now where I go on the Hill and I look around and go, "This is not the Hill of my childhood." Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but I'll tell you what, the businesses are thriving. Some really great restaurants, uh, are in that area and other businesses moving in. So the place is really bustling and it's really cool because you can go there and park your car and you could walk everywhere. And I, like I said, there was two bakeries, one down one block, one down the other from my deli. Uh, now there's a one coffee shop, the Shaw coffee shop. There's another place called Cafe Dolce, which is nothing but nothing but desserts and Italian coffees and stuff. Fabulous, fabulous area. Just wonderful. The metaphysics of finding one's place or finding about where you were born and discovering many times fairly late in life how much it always meant to you, even though you didn't contemplate it. Joe contemplates a lot. Many of us uh, don't do that well there, but it just gets you, as we like to say, in the bejesus belt there. So (laughs) it was great to be able to revisit the past, your past, Joe, and to talk about the value of growing up where you were. It's so organic, so meaningful. 
We're at the time when we're going to take our one and only break. And when we come back, let's get into the metaphysical weeds with Joe Rombolo. There is spirituality. There is the business of spirituality and a lot to be said in regard. We are Manson Mitchell. So glad you're with us. Give us a couple of minutes and we will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Joe Rombolo, making his triumphant return after eight years to talk about the business side of spirituality. On Saturday, Rose Kreider makes her debut with insights into film and television based on her years of experience as an actress, director, and runway model. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, talk radio for the body, mind, and soul. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Joe Rombolo. Joe, who we have not talked to in a long time, and we are so, so happy to have him back on air with us because the conversation is always so rich and uh, and wonderful. Joe, if people would like to find out more about you and the kinds of things that you're up to, where is the best place for them to do that? Best place to find me is on Facebook. So it's just facebook.com forward slash Joe Rombolo. Um, I, since, since the last time that we spoke on the air, um, I actually retired and then I went into Medicare sales. Uh, so now I am a licensed Medicare broker. I represent all the major carriers. And um, if, you know, if anybody needs Medicare help, 314 753 0792. Once Go again, ahead and repeat it, Joe. Yeah, one more time. 314-753-0792. Or you can catch up with me on Facebook. I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Just give me a call for a no-cost Medicare review any time of the year. 
And, uh, and I'm assuming if you are a broker for a number of people that the, uh, the conversation is just like what one offers over a different one, kind of trying to mix the right person with the right policy. Yes. That's it. That's the whole idea of being a broker. First of all, you explain Medicare to the person and then figure out what is the best plan, the plan that best suits the person's needs. Yeah. So that's what I do. We, um, it, it isn't that you, know, you gave up on us or we gave up on you, the fact that we haven't had you on in uh, just about eight years, but what did occur <clears throat> from what little Gary and I figured out was that you had a lot of other things going on in your life. And, and so back in 2015, about eight years ago, you had some things happen to you that were both physical and metaphysical. And so tell us a little bit about what happened to you eight years ago. Well, and I'll tell you, st- sitting here right now, talking to, talking to both of you and all the folks out there, um, this is not something that I put, I didn't put this plan together eight years ago or 10 years ago, or even 12 years ago, but sitting here looking back on the last eight, 10, even 12 years ago, uh, I look at what has happened as uh, a life recalibration. There were things, there were things that were, I was starting to see different points of view of things. I had gotten pretty involved in the the metaphysical, spiritual, personal growth and development communities. I had been working there. Uh, as you know, my radio show was was directed that way. Um, I had the opportunity at that time to work with a lot of the well-known uh, authors, channelers, those kinds of people, and even uh, put together uh, an international radio network and was able to get a lot of these folks to host shows on that network I got an opportunity to be behind the scenes, uh, and for the most part, I really didn't like what I saw. And so I, I just started to move away from it. And, um, and then eight years ago, I got married. Uh, my wife, Rebecca, um, I've, known her, I've known her since 1979. I was a little slow on the uptake as far as, I guess. you know, <laughs> but... Uh, back then, uh, my band and I were playing at the Stardust Hotel in Las Vegas and she and she and a girlfriend were out there and happened to, uh, stop in and see a show, but I didn't meet her then. I met her several months later in St. Louis and, you know, we just kind of, we went out a little bit here and a little bit there and we knew each other and we did a bunch of personal growth and development courses with the same company and everything. And, uh, now fast forward eight years ago, we, we got married. And, uh, you know, and of course that's life changing. And, uh, it was all part of this life recalibration where I've, I've had the opportunity to, to look at a lot of different things, uh, from different points of view. And, um, you know, as far as where I, as far as where I am right now, I'm thrilled with where I am right now. I, I actually love being, you know, right in this space right now. With. When when do you recall, if you if you do recall, when you first became interested in the unseen world? I I know for you know both Gary and I we're pretty young, you know teens and twenties where we're starting to think 
you know, is this all there is, or is there more that I can't see? And, and then it kind of exploring when, when was your exploration starting? Do you remember? You know, I can, I can, I can remember a Christmas Eve when I was 14 years old, having a religious conversation with my relatives, my aunts and my uncles, and, and actually, um, speaking a different point of view uh, than what the Catholic Church says, uh, and a different point of view of, you know, actually who I thought Jesus Christ was. Um, I, you know, said, I think that this, he was a man and who had some extraordinary abilities, but I don't, you know, I, I didn't get into that whole the, the whole son of God and all of that. And that was kind of a, that was kind of a forerunner to later on when I started to get into the spiritual things, the metaphysical things, and all of this actually coming together and, and kind of realizing that we as humans are capable of so much more than we think we are uh, in terms, in terms of, you know, what we're capable of, of creating and then looking back on that and thinking, yeah, that's what I was saying about this, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he, he was capable of so much more, and he was telling people, you're all, you can do all of this. And um, so I guess, I guess it goes all the way back to that time when I was four. I don't know where it came from. I don't recall reading it in a book. I just recall this is what I was thinking. So, yeah, I was pretty well, young. You know, interesting that, um, you know, culturally, uh, most of us have had some kind of religious background, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, any number of flavors of uh, Christianity, uh, Hinduism, you know, quite a bit. It's a, a cultural thing that we we have with our families. I have often said that all the religions are made up by man none of them are from god they're just men made stuff up i don't mean to actually put religion down the way it may sound because i think that there is a a foundation that you get in religion which can help launch you in your life what i do find when people who question their religion and their religious teachings is that they kind of move in the in the idea of spiritual not religious i don't particularly like the dogma however i do feel like there is a one universal intelligence or power that guides me in my life and and so then people kind of move into that that whole arena of spirituality and and if i i uh i don't want to put any words in your mouth so i want you mm -hmm. to say it but when you went like full in with a, a spirituality uh radio network did you did you find that it was like another religion or did you find that it was very different from that? What I found 
what I found was working with many of the people that I was working with and, and, you know, and I mean, I got along with all of them for a while. Um, but what I found with what I, what I ultimately found out was that with, with some of them, they were saying that, you know, uh, you know, speak your own flavor of the truth, you know, and, you know, we are not a religion, you know, we're just a different flavor of, of the truth and everything. But behind the scenes, I, I noticed that I noticed that some of them were saying, okay, uh, I don't care what you do as long as you're doing something, you know, with spirituality, pick me, pick me, pick me, you know, and they would, they would have, they would call their flavor the truth. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. Uh, they, they were creating their own dogma. And, and I think that many of them have created their own religions under the guise of spirituality. And that's kind of where I was going with this. When we had talked about setting up the interview for today, um, you were saying that, you know, parts of it seemed a little disillusioning as you got to know some of these people a little bit better, that um, that everybody had uh, a piece of the puzzle, but nobody was the whole puzzle. And so we were talking about how spirituality may be as much of a business as religion, the business of spirituality. I have my book, I have my, my point of view, and if you buy my book and if you adopt my point of view and think the way I think and do the things that I do, that you too will have a better life. Yeah, and come come to my classes and, you know, pay me, pay me money. I mean, there was one operation and I, I really can't, I really can't mention names because no, I don't want you to, you know, I can't, yeah. I can't mention names because it, it actually would not be fair to people. And I don't right. mean those right. people, but I'm talking about the people that are out there seeking because, yes. because they're each on their own path and they need to discover whatever they need to discover. But I mean, I know one organization, it, they were, they were trying to run this, this operation, like it was Coca-Cola or General Motors, mm -hmm. like it, like it was a corporation you know, complete with board meetings and, and, and all these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, and within those, and within those meetings, uh, the, the main players were always complaining about the people who were actually paying the money to support them about, you know, how, how cheap they are, uh, how, how the same, same group of people are always the ones that are spending the money. And there's a lot of, a lot of people that were hanging on for all the free stuff and everything. Uh, I have nothing against people making money and making as much money as they possibly can legitimately, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's legitimately, that's the key. That's the key word. But, but, you know, conning people, uh, you know, to give them, give them money, uh, asking for donations, just like a church churches. Yeah. What do they do every Sunday? There's, there's the people walking up and down the aisles with the baskets here, put your money here, you know, just, just like the churches, uh, that that's part of what, uh, how I was becoming disillusioned with, with the whole thing. Wasn't the fact that they were making money if they were making it legitimately, but I really felt like the people were being conned and, you know, looking back and I still kind of look in on, on everything, you know, every once in a while I look in and what I notice. I noticed that each group has the same people that were there a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And, you know, um, 
I, I just would think, I just would think that people would kind of progress. You know, I've come to the conclusion that it's not up to me to to judge that. I don't judge people that go to mass every Sunday or Saturday evening at five o'clock. It's like if this really works for them, if this is really helping them, God bless them. Let them do it. If it makes them feel better, you know, what what business is it of mine? But I do kind of take a look and say, God, you, you would think that people would move forward. That's just me. Or another way of putting it, you would hope they would wise up. Well, yeah. But you know, recently, Suzanne and I did a, a Saturday show talking about cults, the, and particularly the history of religious cults in modern America. And with the notable exception, there, this is just my perspective, with the notable exception of the Heaven's Gate cult, which appeared to either require or strongly encourage that males get castrated as part of the membership process, which I have to say seems a little stringent. Yeah. There, but <laughs> with the exception of Heaven's Gate and, and Marshall Applewhite there, who had himself, I mean, he had problems with his homosexuality and uh, ultimately he got himself castrated. So all of that happened. But typically, in my experience, just watching these things on the news or hearing about them, there are a few elements, two in particular, that keep showing up. And that the first one is, of course, money. They want to get as rich as they can, and people will, will sell their houses or take out another mortgage, whatever it is to support this cult that perhaps has given them a welcoming community, a sense of family for the first time in their lives because they've grown up dysfunctionally and here they find a panacea, but it will cost you. That's one thing. The second aspect is that the leader ordinarily is a male, could be on the young side, certainly middle-aged. And what they do is create guru status and an aura of invincibility, even holiness, and that holiness turns into sacred sexuality, which quite ironically turns out to be their main source of sexual gratification within the cult itself. So they're getting your money, they're able to use your body, and then they run afoul of the law and they want to turn it into a political cause as though they are the ones who are being persecuted when by all rights, if you look at the evidence, they actually should be prosecuted. That's mm -hmm. what I've noticed. Well, you know, you're right about that. And I will tell you this, that the people, the people that I worked with, the people that I know, the people that I disagreed with, I can't say that any of them ever went that far. No. None of them, none of them ever went that far at all. Um, no, it was, no it was, I don't, I don't think yeah. it's, it's that so much as a, a warning sign, you know, like there are warning signs when you are um, setting yourself up, when people say, you know, you're so smart, you're so clever, share your knowledge with me. And, and if you have something that is useful in your life and you want to share it with somebody else, you just need to not think of yourself as a know-it-all guru. You know, you just have a piece of information. I, I keep saying one piece of the puzzle. You know, you if you're lucky, 
you have one piece of a much bigger puzzle. Life is is way, way, way too complex, even far more than we understand. And, you know, we're we're all just trying to get through it in the very best way that we can. Hence, a metaphysical spirituality. There's a lot of seekers out there. Some of the places that they're seeking may be blind alleys. Some of the places may be dangerous. Some of the places may be ridiculous. And, and some may be elate, you know, illegal and downright evil. And, and so I think when we talk about the, the business of spirituality, it is to understand that, that people do have talents and skills, whether they're in the, the physical scene world of how to compare different insurance policies or in the unseen world, of comparing several tracks that you can set your life on and where those tracks might lead you. So I just, you know, when, when we were talking, you know, before the show, it was like, um, spirituality can be a business too. And I think people need to go into it eyes wide open because, you know, I know that I appreciate, uh, astrology and numerology and and esoteric arts and channeling and psychics and psychic mediums and and everything having to do with that unseen world is something i have developed an appreciation for over many years but it's also important not to be fooled and and to go into things with eyes wide open. And and that's what we were talking about was do do your best to to vet and 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 really decide for yourself. I have to tell you Joan, I don't want this hour to end without mm-hmm. saying this. You gave me a phrase years ago that not only have I never forgotten, but I used it a lot. And the phrase that you used to say was my truth. I I was looking for the truth. I was looking for the ultimate truth. And you said, there is no ultimate truth. There's my truth. There's your truth. And, and so um, I, I just wanted to, to thank you for giving me that perspective. You know, your, your piece of the puzzle was to really understand that the truth that you believed in was your personal truth, not some truth from outside of you that applied to everybody. And and I appreciated that point of view. So thank well, you for that. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for, for mentioning that. And, and one other thing about, about my truth, okay, or your truth, or Gary's truth, that truth is constantly evolving. For me, it is. I don't know if it is for you, but for me, it's constantly evolving. So that means that if I believe if what my truth is today is X, Y, Z, you know, tomorrow it might be ABC because I've seen something, I've done something, something has occurred and it's given me cause. It's given me cause for for taking a look and saying, oh, wait a minute, this is what I believed. 
And now it's looking like something else is happening here. Let me take a look at that. I'll take a look at that and go, okay, well, maybe now this is my truth. It has evolved. It's changed. You know, I don't know whether it's, if, if it's gotten better, if it's gotten worse, if it's gone sideways, whatever it is. All I can tell you is it's changed. And that's, that, that's it. I just really feel, for me, for me anyway, I have to constant, constantly be evolving and, you know, investigating and just seeing. Because I know, I know that none of us has the capital T truth. If you know what I mean, none of us has the cat. We don't really know anything for sure. We don't know what's happening other than this lifetime. You know, we suspect we can investigate, you know, we can think that we know, but we don't know for sure what's happening out there. That's a very deep way of looking into life, Joe, uh, uh, very quickly. What I've, what I've decided is that if all the things that I currently believe, in, in terms of probability that when I lay down this body someday, my consciousness and sense of personal identity will survive and I will enter another dimension of life and I will continue to grow, hopefully. If that turns out not to be the case, I'm not at all afraid of like being cast into a, a lake of fire because I didn't accept a set of propositions about a first century carpenter and itinerant preacher and healer in Palestine. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's how it would work. I would simply be extinguished. My consciousness would be gone forever and I wouldn't even know I'm dead. That's not such a bad deal. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a binary choice, but I can handle either one of those. For me, it's a matter of live your life as well as you can, and then either we'll see what happens when we die or we won't. Either way, I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. So like I said, we don't know for sure. We can suspect uh, our, our points of view can change from time to time. Uh, there's events that occur that you know, give us some kind of an idea that there is something, there's something more to all of this. You know, I, I actually kind of hope there is because, you know, there's, there's stuff we need to do. There's stuff. Well, there, there was a radio show one time. I was going to say there's stuff to do out there, but the name of the radio show was there's no, uh, there's no out there out there. Hmm. <laughs> okay. There's no out there out there because it's all in here. Well said, Joe Rombolo. I look forward to visit 19 sometime soon. Okay, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for being with us today. And stay tuned, especially at 1 o'clock Pacific, because you it's... are going to have American Road Trip Talk talking about... The Elephant Sanctuary in, of all places, Tennessee on World Wildlife Day. I hope you'll join us. Have a great weekend, everyone.